electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Here's what is ahead on The Exchange. Stocks giving back their early gains. And how is this for a stat? There have now been six months already this year where the S&P has fallen more than 3%. One more month like that, the next three. And it'll be just like 1937. So what are you to do? One of my guests says you get into the markets because dips driven by the Fed are usually worth buying. He'll tell us why and what he is buying now. Plus, the B's are as good as the A's. Obviously, we're not talking about school. Study up, kids. We're talking about corporate bonds with yield soaring. Why aren't we seeing more demand? We'll get a check on the health of the bond market coming up. And an earnings exchange today, we're going to talk payroll, poultry and parking. But we begin with today's numbers and Dom Chu and man, Dom had a little optimism this morning. It faded. All right. So here's what it is. It's not dramatic yet, but it does. It definitely doesn't feel good right now when you think you're going to get a bounce after a big sell off like you saw the last couple of days. And then all of a sudden you say to yourself, oh, you know what happened to the marketplace? The S&P 500 is down 17 right now. Again, it's only half a percent if you want to say only. But we were up 62 points at one point today. We were down 29 at the low, so tilting towards more the, the, the downside there. 36.37 is your last trade there. That's off roughly one half of 1%. Similar percentage losses there for the uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average now floating just above the 29,000 mark. And the Nasdaq Composite, just about one-tenth of 1% decline. It's been very volatile, that tech trade today. The Nasdaq Composite, 10,787. Again, off about one to two-tenths percent. Interest rates are a big part of that story. Earlier in the day, much like we saw in the noon hour just yesterday, we saw a sharp move higher in interest rates. This is the 10-year Treasury note yield now pushing 4%, 3.96 the last trade there. But you can see just around the 9 a.m. hour or so, we saw a very pronounced move higher just to about session highs where we are right now. It's been kind of bumping around there since then. But still, with 10-year note yields at cycle highs right now, will that weigh on the valuation story when people can get Guaranteed income backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. taxpayer. Will they pay more for stocks? That remains to be seen. Also, if you're looking for a bright spot in today's trade, watch what's happening with, well, now even Generac Holdings was positive at one point today, now has turned negative. There was a lot of positivity as some traders and investors took a bad story, which is what's going to happen, down with the hurricane in Florida and said, will that possibly boost demand for generators from Generac. That is a key point to keep a close eye on as the weather develops down in southwest Florida. And then again, Brian, big story, because in tomorrow's show, I know that we're going to have Generac CEO on in the 1 p.m. hour to talk a little bit about what's going to happen in Florida, elsewhere, and the state of the entire generator business. An an interview you'll not want to miss tomorrow's exchange. They're not cheap, but if you have a whole home generator and you lose power for five or seven days, it is a game changer. Look forward to that interview, Dom. Thank you very much. All right, right now we have a news alert on the most important sector of the economy, the housing market. Diana Olick joining us now. Diana, what's going on? Brian, the average rate on the 30-year fix just crossed into the seven, 7.08%. 
precisely, according to Mortgage News Daily. This after rising sharply last week following the last Fed meeting and Chairman Powell saying he would continue to be aggressive in lowering inflation. To put this in perspective, that rate was 3% at the start of this year and hung in the 5% range for most of the summer. The fast jump in rates is now slowing home prices at a record pace. The S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Report out this morning showed that while prices were still up about 15% in July year over year, that was down from over 18% in June and the largest monthly shrinkage in the annual gain ever reported. Brian. Diana, is this a doubling this year then on, on mortgage rates? Yeah, more than a doubling. More than a doubling in Three nine, seven, in nine months. Okay, yes. I'm not going to ask you how long you've been doing this, but in your time doing this, have you seen a move like this ever? No, no. No, I mean, we had to look during the Great Recession. We saw a lot of big changes fast, but they, they didn't happen quite this quickly to see that go up over six percent, even in June and then come back a little bit in July and August. But then up over seven percent. I've not seen it. And I won't say how very long a couple of decades I've been here. Yeah, seven percent. Wow. Diana Olick, thank you very much. All right. All this comes and bringing us right back to the conversation and the debate, of course, that is driving all the market moves. And that is the Federal Reserve. Chicago Fed President Charles Evans striking a cautiously optimistic tone on Squawk Box Europe and reminding us that Fed policy does take time to work its way through the system. Listen. There are lags in monetary policy and we've moved very, you know, expeditiously. And so, you know, when we've done three 75 basis point increases in a row and there's talk of more uh, to get to that four and a quarter to four and a half by the end of the year, you're not leaving much time to sort of look at each monthly release. Um, I, I again, I still believe that our consensus, the median forecaster to get to the peak funds rate, assuming you know, by March, assuming there are no further adverse shocks. And if things get better, you know, then we could perhaps do less. But I, but I, th I think we're headed for, you know, that, that peak funds rate. All right, here now with his reaction and what is next for the Fed and maybe housing market is Dick Kovacevich, former chairman and CEO of Wells Fargo. Dick, it's really important to have you on. Thank you very much for joining us. I want to get to the Fed, but I've got to ask you first about what you just heard from Diana. You guys, when you ran Wells Fargo, I believe you were one of, if not the leading mortgage lender. What is a 7% mortgage rate going to do to the American housing market? Well, it's already uh, slowing, you know, uh, in a, in a uh, historic low, um, and it will keep slowing. However, if you're my age, you remember that six, seven, eight percent mortgage rates were normal. Uh, we have yeah, just gone but, but I agree. Agree with I do agree with that. But that's that's coming where everybody was paying the same thing, not having doubling in a year, Dick. That's my thing. We've gotten sort of I hate to use the word addicted, but we've gotten kind of addicted to super low rates. We, we, we did. And that's the fault of the Fed. We, we need to talk about that. Uh, I think that's why we are where we are. But uh, you'll also see arms uh, uh, come around. And uh, an arm now is probably more like in the 5% area. And you can uh, keep that rate for at least five years before it's redone. So there will be ways to, if you really have to have a mortgage, uh, that you can that you get one. Uh, but more and more uh, cash is the way people are, are uh, buying homes. That's amazing. I think like 30% of all home transactions are cash. So that'll save that part of the market. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve. Because I, in all due respect to all my friends and colleagues, we've just been debating on this network about the Fed's rate hiking strategy. I think the Fed's biggest mistake is not what they're doing now. 
It's to your point, which is the fact that they got us hooked on low rates. I'm more angry with the Fed about this uber low policy rather than bringing us back to some sort of normalization. What is your view? Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, let's just review what happened in the Fed. I think the Fed uh, kept uh, zero interest rates and QE far too long. Then the administration put trillions of dollars into the economy uh, that uh, were not required to uh, revive the, uh, the uh, to get uh, economic growth. And, and, the, and what happened is that the money supply, M2, uh, raised or went up at a 40% annual rate. This hasn't happened since World War II. So because of that, anyone who's had any history of this in, in economics would say you're going to have very, very high inflation. Shockingly and astonishingly to me, uh, both the Fed and the administration said, oh, no, this is just transitory. You know, there, there's no issues here. So they still didn't take uh, uh, the advantage of, of uh, some, mon- uh, some more restrictive monetary policy. Yeah. And why now we're on a day Dick, why, where- the Fed, Everybody's going after Powell. I get it. And, and he deserves, and the rest of the Fed, probably a lot of the blame for where we are today. Janet Yellen seems to be bizarrely escaping any criticism at all. The Treasury played a big role in, 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 in everything, in all the money that, that has driven all this inflation. The Treasury just seems to be like, oh, yeah, you don't even hear from them. I agree with you. That's why I say the Biden administration and the Federal. And, of course, you look to the, to the Treasury Secretary to be the person who should have realized uh, that there, there simply was no rationale for this, uh, for this uh comment of transitory other than for politics. And I think it was a big, big mistake. So, so finally and, and belatedly, uh, the, the Fed has realized they're far behind the curve and had to take a, a Paul Volcker action, if you will, yeah. and raise rates higher and faster than any time since the 1980s. Um, and so the, we are at risk to maybe overdoing it because they were so far behind and they're trying to catch up. I, 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 I know, I know, listen, I know, Dick, that, that Jay Powell has got a term. He, he is, he's got a, effectively a contract, or you can call it whatever you, you want. Jay Powell's a political science major, former attorney, and worked for Carlisle Group. I don't know about Yellen and how it works at the top of the Treasury. If, if either of these two were running a publicly traded company, they would have been fired by now. I agree. They've been fired. But, but yet, do we need to see a change at the top to regain? Clearly, the bond market has no confidence in what's going on. I don't think that's... And by the way, it's not just here. The UK did the same thing. 30-year yields in the UK are soaring back to highs from 20 years ago. Um, how do we fix this? We know how we got here. How do we fix it? Well, I, I, think, I think the Fed is finally on the right track. I think that the uh, Fed wants to see the Fed funds rate get to somewhere between 45 and 5% as quickly as possible, and then they may consider pausing at that time or looking at the factors at that time. They may decide to go ahead or, or, uh, or pause. But I think they know that they're behind the curve and they have to get this under control and there's only a few, it'll only take a few months, a few more raises to do that. Yeah. And, and then we'll see what happens. And, and I, I think that we get around that period of time, 
And, and again, the economy is slowing. Uh, inflation is coming down. Uh, we should uh, be pretty close to where we need to be. Dick Kovacevic, former CEO and chairman of Wells Fargo. Dick, we appreciate the blunt conversation. It's an important time. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Speaking of the bond market, five-year notes up for auction. Rick Santelli's at the CME and joins us now. How did the auction go, Rick? It did not go well. Yesterday's two-year didn't go well, and today's 44 billion five-year notes. The grade for demand at straight up one Eastern D minus. Dog minus the yield 4.228 on those 44 billion five-year notes. Uh, two-thirds of the way through our complete supply tomorrow's seven-year kicks off and finishes 123 billion. It wasn't a great auction, no matter how you slice it, Sully. As a matter of fact, the bid to cover at 2.42, uh, excuse me, 2.27 is well below the 10 auction average of 2.42, and it's the lightest since July of 2019. Indirect bidders, the important foreign demand side, the weakest since September of 21. I could go through it, but it was just weak. D minus, there's no way to get around the fact that Catching a knife at this point in time, trading treasuries, it's better for investors in many ways to go to the secondary market, and that's what they choose to do in many respects. But this does give us some type of an indication, and if you look at the chart, you could clearly see rates are moving back up towards that four and a quarter mark on the seven-year, extending their run. Sully, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. All right, well, the risk of aggressive rate hikes may be spooking investors, but your next guest says that recessions driven by central bank policy generally are mild, and the dips caused by the Fed may be worth buying. Joining us now is Andy Capron. He is co-chief investment officer at Regent Atlantic. Andy, good to have you on uh, an important time as well. What do you mean by this? What history are you looking at that says the Fed shoves us into recession? It's generally a little softer. Sure. So when you look at the history of what the Fed does to markets, when we have an inflationary problem or when we have the risk of an inflationary problem, is they do exactly what they're doing today. This is a textbook response. It's something that we're not used to because we haven't seen it in such a long time, but it happens all the time. If you look at history going back as recently as the 1990s, the Federal Reserve detects an inflationary problem, hikes uh, hikes rates very quickly, uh, sometimes at paces of 75 basis points of meeting, sometimes even higher than that still, and does it basically in a race with the economy. What the Fed is trying to do is raise rates as quickly as they can without causing the market to get too unsettled. We're certainly unsettled today, but we don't want it to get too unsettled and beat the economy into a recession. Because if they raise rates fast enough to contain inflation, then they can drop rates, do a little bit of stimulus, and we come out the other side of it with a healthy economy and a healthier 2% or so rate of inflation. This is what's happening. And every time the Fed's done that, go back to 1990, go back to 1980, what you see is a lot of market uh, tumult, a lot of turbulence, a decline like what we've seen so far, and eventually a buying opportunity as things start to calm down. Now, I'm not going to be one to call a bottom. This is a very turbulent market. It could well overshoot levels. But if I'm looking at corporate America, I see what looks like fortress balance sheets, what looks like a much more attractive entry point relative to what we started at the start of the year. That's well said. I mean, listen, I think everybody would agree that inflation is probably going to come down in the months and quarters ahead because it's coming down off these insane highs. The economy will slow down. Housing may go up, but energy costs, at least for gas, electricity prices are up. We'll see. All right. So how would that benefit a company like a Pepsi? Sure. So what benefits a company like Pepsi is just the sheer diversity of what they do. Um, We, of course, know the Pepsi brand as a beverage brand, but it also does snacks. It does uh, Quaker oatmeal. Um, It's globally diverse. 
Um, and it's been really successful at being able to pass through the increased input costs into higher costs down at the grocery store. So it's maintained its margin. And what you see in Pepsi is a company that, in a very turbulent market, has done a really good job of maintaining its value, continuing to pay its dividend, continuing to hike it. Yeah, and then you've got, of course, a Home Depot. We just talked about 7% mortgages. Yep. I guess the thesis is, okay, we're not moving. Let's just put on a new deck because we can't afford to buy a new home, so maybe we'll just throw on another room. I mean, it's simplistic. You buy into it? Of course I do. So what I see in Home Depot is one of the best managed big box stores, period. Now, it happens to be a big box store that focuses on home improvement. And in my opinion, that's a really good place to be for the near term. For the next couple of years, we're likely to have mortgage rates that are prohibitive to buying a new home if you already have one. So if you locked in a rate of 2.6, 3% over the course of the past few years, it's going to be really hard for you to upgrade without really upgrading your payment at the same time. That's going to make it more attractive to make the home you're already in nicer. Uh, it's going to create a cycle of home improvement, in my opinion, that could really drive sales at a retailer yeah. like, home, like Home Depot. All right. Andy Capron with Regent Atlantic will sit in our new home and drink some Pepsi or Diet Pepsi or Fanta. If that's your thing. Andy, thank you. All right, a tab. All right, on deck, our continuing state of debt series with a big look at corporate debt, where the opportunities are as the high-yield corporate bond ETF, the HYG, falls to its lowest level since March of 2020, the start of the pandemic. And three stocks going in very three different directions this year. CalMain up 66%, you go eggs. Paychecks down 16%, recession fears there. And RV maker Thor getting crushed down 31%. I mean, how much would an 8 or 10% loan on a $200,000 motorhome cost? And what will their next results bring? We've got the action, the story, and the trade all ahead on Earnings Exchange. Stick around. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Let's talk debt. Look at that big sign. Which way is that way? There you go. All right, the average yield on the lowest rated tier of investment grade bonds, known as triple B, just hit that number, 5.75%. And that is the highest level since 2009. Now, when rates go up, it means really two things. It means that Wall Street views the bond as more risky to own, or they just have to pay you more to get you to want to buy those bonds, or probably some combination of the two. 
Your next guest says that companies entering this cycle are in the best financial position they have been compared to past periods, yet demand for these bonds remains poor. Is that a bad omen for the overall health of the corporate debt market? Let's find out. Here to discuss is Scott Kimmel, Managing Director and Co-Head of Fixed Income Investments at Loop Capital. Scott, welcome. As you know better than I do, certainly the market doesn't price what's happening now. It prices what it thinks is going to happen. And clearly, parts of the bond market are scared. You hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of there's a lot of different information that's funneling into the bond market, and yields are supposed to compensate us for all of that. So, we really had a very strong uh, reminder of bond math so far this year. Where the first thing we had to tackle was this rising inflation. The bond market hasn't really had to tackle rising inflation in, in multi-decade periods. But as you said, there's been some pretty strong repricing. So if you look at the longer longer maturity corporate bonds, high yield. They've repriced pretty significantly, and you are seeing yields that are compensating you for inflation if we were to think of it in isolation. But the challenge that we have now is we have to factor in volatility and the outlook for the economy, which is the forward-looking portion that you mentioned. And that's what we're seeing a lot of choppiness and spreads and a lot of bifurcations in the marketplace, particularly when you look at longer-dated debt. Because when people think longer-dated debt, they think more interest rate risk. And while that's correct... It can also be a very strong opportunity when you look at long corporate corporate bonds that are down 30% year to date, their worst start ever. I'm going to call a little audible here on the graphics. We got to crack. I'll pull a little Peyton Manning. Omaha, Omaha. If we could throw up the JNK for maybe the longest period we have, guys, I'd appreciate it. That is another high yield bond ETF. I'm looking right now. The JNK is at 87.75. That's the same price it was in January of 2009, at the peak of the financial crisis. So either we're going into a major bankruptcy and crisis-like situation, or something is wildly mispriced. So in the high-yield market, just to add a little fuel to the fire, I think you're pointing at with high-yield debt is, we have to think about the energy sector, because that's a huge part of the high-yield debt market, and right now it's on firm footing. Back then it was not. So if we were to take away the recovery in the energy prices and look solely at where high yield debt is pricing for your basic industrial company, it actually looks even uh, like it's pricing in some some economic scenarios in, in some cases that are worse than 2009. And the reason for that is the problem we're seeing with housing. You saw some reports today that show housing falling 6%. We do we look at that from an economic lens, and that filters through to Main Street America and the microeconomy very acutely. And that's really weighing on high yield. Now, the consumer entered this cycle in very good shape. We saw a lot of household savings rates and things in in very strong positions. However, when we start talking about housing, that's the connectivity. That's the common factor that really links all consumers or many consumers. But has the the Scott, I'm sorry to interrupt, has the sell off been overdone in these HYG, J and K? I th- our, our, our opinion is, yeah, to an extent, there's a lot of opportunities you're finding if you look at a very specific part of high yield. Now, high yield has issued a lot of seven and 10 year debt, which was atypical of itself. But with people reaching for interest rates, they were able to do it. That may not be the case now. That being said, if we look at the two, three, even maybe some five year high yield corporate debt, you are getting compensated very attractively for what we think is going to be not okay. a soft landing, but a softer landing than the market's pricing in. Called soft ish. Scott Kimball of Loop Cap, soft ish. Thank you very much, Scott. All right, Thank coming you. up, would you still buy an electric car if it wasn't cheaper to charge versus filling up your car or truck with gas? That may soon be the question facing our friends across the pond. That story next. Thank you. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Don't kill the messenger. It's just another tough day for the stock market. In fact, the Dow's down again now to 227 points, about 0.8%. The loss is less than yesterday. NASDAQ on three quarters of 1%. The S&P now hitting its lowest level since 2020. Here's a math stat from Bespoke Investment Group with the, with the NASDAQ 100 now down 32 or 33% from its highs. You're going to need a 48% gain to get back to where you were. That's called math, and it's not good. All right, now let's shift gears and talk about electric cars, or rather the cost to charge one, because it is now nearly as expensive to fill up a gas-powered car in England. New data shows that electric car drivers in the UK who use a public rapid or ultra-rapid charger are paying 42% more than they were back in May and 70% more year over year. An auto group found that using a public pay-as-you-go rapid charger cost about 35 U.S. dollars to get an 80% charge in your car. By the way, I paid about 30 bucks when I went on that Polestar road trip. The U.K. group found that it cost 18 British pence per mile driven on electricity versus just 19 pence per mile for gasoline, one pence more. U.K., of course, wants to ban the sale of gas and diesel-powered cars by 2030 because many people in the U.K., particularly middle- and lower-income households, do not have a garage or a place to charge at home, they have to use public chargers. And as such, the auto group is calling for a tax cut on the electricity used in the public chargers to entice people to buy more electric cars. All right, now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Fascinating stuff there, Brian. Thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. About two and a half million people in Florida are under some form of evacuation order because of Hurricane Ian. Clearwater near Tampa Bay is one of many cities where windows are getting boarded up in preparation for Ian's arrival as a major hurricane. Across the state on Florida's Atlantic coast, NASA's Artemis rocket is taking shelter from the storm inside the building where it was assembled. Artemis, the rocket, took 11 hours to complete the trip back from the launch pad. It goes about as slow as the traffic to Giants Stadium last night. Uh, The rocket's next attempt to launch and circle the moon will likely not happen until late October or November. On the news tonight with Shepard Smith, the uh, biggest threats from Hurricane Ian will be live on the ground in Florida with the latest on the storm preparations there. And European officials are rushing to investigate the cause of major leaks in the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Seismologists in Sweden and Denmark say they detected powerful explosions in the area around the breaks. Secretary of State Blinken says the cause of the leaks has not yet been confirmed, Brian. This is an absolutely, Tyler, bizarre story because there's only one way, two ways to look at it. Either somebody attacked the Russian pipeline to hurt the Russians, which seems bizarre, or the Russians attacked their own pipeline, which is even more bizarre. Yeah, exactly. It's a scary story, by the way, in the video showing this this weird thing in the ocean where the leaks are coming up. Tyler, thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, coming up, we're going to go triple E, eggs, employment, and electric recreational vehicles. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade coming up on Calmain Foods, Paychex, and Thor Industries. We're back after this. 
As the snazzy graphic says, it is time now for earnings exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Calmine Foods, Paychex, and Thor Industries. Here we go. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the egg came first in this story. Calmaine Foods, the egg company, shares are soaring this year up 64%. I mean, you've gone to the store. You know that egg prices are sky high. Well, Calmaine beat on both the top and bottom lines last quarter. Dom Chu has the story. Quint Tatro joining us with the trade. He is the founder and CEO of Jewel Financial. Dom, what is the story? on Calmaine Foods. All right, Sully, it's a good time to focus on one of those rare good stories, the winners, right? And, and a good story is a relative term, of, and it's about perspective, right? Because to your point, Calmaine's good story in some ways has been a bad story for consumers. America's biggest producer of eggs, a key food for many in our country, and as grocery shoppers know, egg prices have shot up through the roof. Bad for shoppers, but it's done a lot to help the revenue growth picture over at Calmaine. The brands there include Eggsland Bests, Land O'Lakes, Farmhouse, you kind of name them, they're all there. Another thing to watch here is the product mix and how much more influence so-called specialty eggs have on that business. That's things like enhanced vitamin-type eggs, nutritional eggs, also cage-free eggs. Also, any kind of commentary from management about the flocks of their chickens and egg production because the industry, as we maybe know, is still recovering from that outbreak of bird flu that reduced egg supplies overall, as well as those labor cost pressures being felt. So Calmaine is going to be one of those rare stories where we're going to be focused as consumers on what they could tell us. Is it a flock of chickens? Dom, is that, you know, is that correct? I don't know. I don't know either, but I'm just going to call it a flock. I just love birds. watching them run over the ranges of Montana free as a bird. It's unbelievable. Uh, Quint Tatro, do you have a trade on Calmaine Foods? I mean, 64% for eggs. I mean, that's a, that's a big gain already. Yeah, it is, Brian. Thankfully, we own the stock, so but we still would buy any weakness. After the last report, despite how good it was top and bottom, the stock pulled back, offering a nice entry point. If that happens again tonight, I think the stock is a buy. I mean, the reality is this stock is, is trading 18 times forward earnings, set to grow those EPS by 50%. Company has no debt. So the reality wow. is that what was we viewed potentially as a headwind with these feed prices, with the commodities, could actually be a tailwind now that softs and commodities are coming in. So, again, any weakness here in the post-market, you know, maybe an opportunity mm -hmm. tomorrow to add shares. Okay. The egg segment is over. Easy. All right. Next up is Paychex. Shares the payroll company being laid off by investors down 36% or 16% rather. And while results did come in better than expected and guidance was in line last quarter, analysts obviously concerned about the impact on inflation and margins and whether client retention was sustainable, Dom, I got to imagine. I mean, it's pretty simple. If you think the job market's going to slow down, you sell shares of payroll companies. I, I mean, for paychecks, it really is, selling to your point, about anything macroeconomic, right? Any, anything about the macro economy, we can glean it all from one of the biggest payroll processors in America. So the number of paychecks it cuts for companies can maybe tell us a little bit more about the strength of the, of the labor market overall, whether a possible soft landing for the economy in the face of a Fed interest rate tightening cycle is actually in or possible in the cards. It's also a good lens to look at the health of the small and medium-sized businesses because it payroll processes or human resource manages many of those types of companies. One thing to watch for will be any of those metrics tied around maybe how much money it makes off of each of its clients, the revenue per client, and whether that growth is on track there. Now, as for the stock, 
This has been up four out of the last five quarterly reports, and the shares have been higher. But it was the most recent quarter, again, to your point, Brian, mm. where the stock did fall despite some of that more kind of inline guidance. Quint, any kind of a counter trend trade here on Paychex? None at all. Uh, in fact, this is a tough one for me. Well, it's not that tough, but I love the company. I'm originally from Rochester, New York, so I love the company, but I don't like the stock here. Obviously, you alluded to it, common sense. If we see jobs uh, grow slow and unemployment pick up, this is not good for a payroll company, but it's also not cheap. It's trading 25 times forward, set to grow those EPS only 7%. Look, it's got a good balance sheet, mm. a so- solid dividend, but it's just not the trend play that we want here. We're, we're a seller of the name. Okay, yeah, Marty Mucci up there in uh, Rochester. All right, finally, Thor Industries. They make great big RVs and camping trailers. Now, Thor shares hammered down 31% this year. RVs, of course, saw a pandemic boom. Everybody got on the road. But now, Dom, you got sky-high borrowing costs. I mean, you, you, an 8% loan on a $300,000 RV is a lot of money. It's like a mortgage. It pretty much is a mortgage for many Americans out there. But RVing has been a big thing, right, over the past several years. Demand for those recreational vehicles really into overdrive during the pandemic, to your point. Uh, All of that being said, I mean, that desire to travel outdoors without having to get on a plane, train or boat, uh, it drove many customers towards those campers and towables. So the comparables are tough, right? A lot of that demand is already there. Can you replicate it? I mean, these are the brand names, the ones that you know, Airstream, Jayco, Heartland. I mean, the picture there from a brand perspective is, is huge. But is the demand picture still robust? And how has the cost of fuel, by the way, affected its business? I mean, driving a motorhome or towing a camper with your truck isn't the most fuel efficient way to travel. So what was the effect of higher fuel costs going into the summer and now a lower fuel cost since then? And by the way, what's the outlook for fuel also? And by the way, other manufacturers like them are facing labor issues as well. Also parts availability. So supply chain, labor, a big factor here, Brian, as well. Absolutely. Thor Industries. I mean, this is the perfect pandemic type trade, Quinn, is it not? I mean, Pelotons yeah, for sure and it camping was. trailers. It, yeah, it did great. It did great during the pandemic. And as you said, I mean, 30% this year, 50% off of the 2021 highs. I'm going to take a variant view here and say this one's a buy. It kind of checks all the value boxes for us. I mean, this thing is trading seven times forward. It's trading 0.24 times sales. It, mm. it is not rich, not even close. It's got a solid balance sheet, which I was actually pretty surprised to see considering the industry that it's in. And this is interesting. They recently made a pretty decent investment in a company called Dragonfly that is involved in the lithium battery uh, production for the RV space. So they're getting involved in sort of that EV model for RVs. They've got the, you know, again, as I alluded to, the healthy balance sheet, solid dividend. I'm going to take this other side here and say this is a buy here. 0.24 times sales. I got to tell you, though, a 38-foot battery-operated RV, what would that weigh? Like 50,000 pounds? We'll see. A lot. Yeah, uh, how about that? A lot is the answer. Quintetro, <laughs> Dom Chu, Mr. Airstream himself. It's a very fine trailer. Thanks, guys. All right, coming up, the S&P 500 hitting the lowest level since 2020 earlier today. Basically, we've given back all the pandemic gains. NASDAQ now down more than 38% from its highs, and the stock market declines, taking a big chunk out of your wealth. We're going to dig into the numbers next. The Exchange is back at 2.
right, welcome back to midterm elections. You might have heard about them. They're more than a month away, but we're closing in on that. But this week is Congress's last session until the election. And there's still a lot on the line, including lawmakers' own assets. Alon Moy joining us back on set with the latest details on a House bill that could have a big impact on, I won't call it insider trading, because that's not fair to say, congressional trading. It's an issue that's ticked off a lot of voters. Yeah, so there's been so much focus, Brian, on which stocks Congress is actually trading, but new rules could ban lawmakers and their families from even owning individual stocks as well as other assets. So here at CNBC, we wanted to understand the extent of Congress's financial holdings. We focus on the leadership of both parties and tallied up the tradable assets of the members, their spouses, and their children from their latest annual disclosures. Here's what we found. There's a little bit of crypto in their portfolio, some REITs too, an estimated $1.9 million is held in ETFs. There's $12.8 million worth of options. Mutual funds are, of course, more popular, though, with $13.7 million invested. But the overwhelming majority of their money is in individual stocks, $125.9 million. The top sectors? Well, for all the backlash against big tech, it's still their favorite place to invest, $76.6 million. The second most popular sector is media and entertainment at $23.9 million. Mm. Then it's consumer discretionary, financials, industrials. The caveat is that most of these investments are held by just a few people, most notably Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who really skews these results. But it's also Nancy Wyden, wife of Senate Finance Chairman Ron Wyden. GOP Senator John Barrasso has an estimated $9 million in the market. Most of that is in broad, widely held funds, though he does own shares of Berkshire Hathaway. But Brian, his office told me that he hasn't traded a stock in 15 years. So that's really the heart of the debate over whether just owning the stock is a potential conflict of interest. I mean, it just doesn't seem hard. I mean, we we can't own stocks. I own one stock, Comcast. That's it. And my wife the same way. We cannot own equities. That is our rule here at CNBC. Congress can trade options and then make legislation that would benefit the companies in the options they hold. It's insane. So the answer so far from Congress has been around disclosures, right? At least let the public know what we're doing. The reality, though, is someone oh, who spent a lot of time... the got so much time to dig through congressional well, exactly. stock trading the records. The reality is that as someone who spent time looking through those disclosures is that they're a mess. They're not standardized. They're hard to follow, and it's hard to understand what exactly Congress is doing. So... In the rules that are being discussed, there's also some updates to what the disclosures would look like, how often they're disclosed, and what the penalties would be if you don't file properly and on time. Con- con- everybody in Congress is rich enough, right? I mean, seriously, you become millionaires just by having a job that pays, what, $200,000 a year. How they do it, I have no idea. Just ban it. Let's bring, let's bring in another voice, okay? I want to bring in Jimmy Petakoukas, economic policy analyst, the American Enterprise Institute, a CNBC contributor. Jimmy, I saw you nodding, and then you shook your head, and then you gave me the middle finger. I think I'm kidding. Should we? <laughs> should we? Never. Should we ban any kind of congressional trading, or at least impose a minimum holding period while they're in office? Yeah. Uh, to be clear, uh, there's already a law on the books from 2012 uh, about members of Congress trading on non-public information. So we're talking about public information, and sort of the cold-hearted economist in me says, listen, uh, congressional trades, give the market information. It got, it, we have a more efficient market. Is that such a bad thing? Now, I will say I would like more frequent and easier to follow disclosure. Hard to follow disclosure once a year doesn't really seem adequate. 
But beyond that, I'm not sure this is actually a huge problem, especially if a lot of that is just a few members, as Alon said. I don't know if it's a big problem, Jimmy. It just stinks, though, right? I mean, that, the problem is that the public needs that faith in Congress. And if they think that somebody is trading options in Facebook or Google or Apple and then writing legislation that may benefit or harm those same companies, how are you supposed to have faith in that legislation? Well, one, I I wish the public understood the ins and outs of trading options. Maybe the CNBC audience does and Facebook. I'm not sure. I'm not sure most Americans know, know about that. If you want, if Congress wants respect, then do a good job. I think this is really it's certainly more of a, I think, a perception issue than it is a corruption issue. So I can, so I can understand them wanting to do that. Well, so let's, for starters, let's try the disclosure route uh, on, on on trades of public information and 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 longer holding periods. I mean, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. But I'm not sure I necessarily want them not to be in the market. Hey, I want them to be just like us. We're in the market. I don't mind them in the market and understanding the ups and downs of the markets as well. The answer that we commonly hear from lawmakers when we ask about this, particularly if the assets are being held by their spouse or by their children, is that they have no involvement in sort of the day-to-day movement of their money, right? These are handled by third parties. However, um, it's very unclear exactly what that means. Does it mean you know what assets are in your portfolio? You choose the ones that go in there. Do you set a strategy, you know, on a quarterly basis, even if it's maybe not day to day? And so some of the new rules that are being debated would sort of formalize what those parameters would be and what that distance that lawmakers need to have from their portfolios would have to be. So basically they're just saying I'm hiding it from my spouse. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's kind, of what, you, hiding it from that's me. kind of what you just said. It's okay. <laughs> don't worry. I don't talk about trading millions in options with my husband or wife. Why would I? It's kind of what you, I mean, right? Depends on which side of the aisle you're on. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the ta- kitchen table. Or the kitchen table. The um, table. Jay Powell, Jimmy, let's pivot a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I tweeted, I heard me, I don't know if you heard the beginning of this show. I was asking the former CEO of Wells Fargo two things. Why isn't Janet Yellen getting any criticism here? I don't get that. It's like she's vanished. Should Jay Powell and or Janet Yellen be replaced? Uh, I, I'm very touchy about replacing. Uh, I mean, they can't uh, be. I mean, chair, it could be. Powell's got a look, contract. He's got look, a deal. Listen, uh, I still I mean, this now sounds this may sound old fashioned, but I want the Fed to be independent. And, and one of the great things that we did in the pony. 1980s. <laughs> One of the great things you did in the 80s, and even though when Paul Volcker was hiking and people were and there were people furious, they knew who the Fed chairman was and they were angry. And yet President Reagan supported him. We're going through a difficult period right now. I think the Fed chairman needs support, uh, not calls for his dismissals. And whether we want to renominate him, find someone else, that's fine. But right now, I think we need to let the Fed do its job independent as much as possible from political pressure. Well, hey, and we got to go. But Elon, I saw a tweet from Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, basically going after Powell. I think it was yesterday. Senator that, Warren. That's, if they're apolitical, Senator, that's not apolitical. Senator Warren has long been critical of Jay Powell, so that's not necessarily surprising that she's going after him. I have not heard anyone in Congress say that Janet Yellen needs to go at this point. But I will say that the Republicans are uh, blame the Fed for not getting started soon enough in terms of hiking rates. So they have sort of are where the market is now in terms of that perspective. Mm. And I would say that they also blame President Biden for putting us in what they say is a recession now. We'll see if that plays out. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big believer in political parties, but I will say electricity prices are soaring, mortgage rates are at 7 percent, and stock market's down 30 percent. The stock-owning Congress people might even get hit. Then they may do something. Ilana, Jimmy, good conversation. 
Really appreciate it. See you later. All right, coming up, apparently hibernation. It's not just for bears anymore. We're going to get the popular group of stocks the retail investors are now leaving by the wayside. We're back in two. One last thing before we go. Self-preservation is now the name for both institutional and retail investors. Kay Rooney joining us now with a day, look at how day traders are positioning. And, and I guess by saying that, there are still day traders. <laughs> They're still here, Brian. They're not going anywhere, according to some new research. But retail investors are changing up their strategies and cutting back on risk at this point. As JMP's Devin Ryan put it, individual traders are getting more tactical and defensive rather than exiting the market altogether. One sign of that is margin balances. So those riskier positions where you borrow money to make a trade are down 35% over at Robinhood and about 20% at Schwab. Vanda Research noting some similar trends. Individual uh, investors have maintained the pace of daily buying even during the market's recent downturn. Inflows have been pretty stable and retail is also upping allocations to more passive investments. So think ETFs, a lot less stock picking. And then money market funds as rates go up. And they're not rushing into cash either. According to Vanda, retail investors have an average to low allocation to cash at this point. It's still well below the COVID sell-off peak you can see here in this chart. And one group that is pulling back, though, Brian, meme stock traders. That's the more speculative side of the market. As Vanda put it, they have gone back into hibernation and are unlikely to make a comeback anytime soon. They measure that through options and social media data. To put it into context, and just how many people we're talking about, in just two years of the pandemic, JMP estimates 25 million new brokerage accounts were opened. Sully, back to you. We'd like to have them in the market. Kate, thank you. And thanks for watching The Exchange. Power Lunch begins six seconds ago. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.